Today we are in 2 Samuel chapter 5. So if you have your Bible with you and you want to follow along, I'll give you a moment to find that passage. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 5 today. If you have any trouble finding it, no worries, because we'll have the words on the screens next to me, so you can follow along there. Nobody will get left behind. So once again, we'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 5, and uh, I'll be reading the first five verses. All right. Well, if we're all about ready, you're almost there. We are going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 5 today. We're continuing in our series on the life of David, and we are in, uh, we're in part two of what I started last week uh, covering this chapter, looking at the uh, final consummation of David's kingdom and him being established as king over all Israel. So we're going to continue learning some things from this passage today. So in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 1, it says, All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Here we are, your own flesh and blood. Even while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led us out to battle and brought us back. The Lord also said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. King David made a covenant with them at Hebron in the Lord's presence, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began his reign. He reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. In British legend, there are the stories of King Arthur. Maybe you're familiar with them, you've heard them before. But in the stories of King Arthur, he is referred to in British legend mythology as the once and future king. And that's because in his story, there were, uh, there were like prophecies, you could say, that King Arthur was going to come back in order to uh, completely vanquish his enemies. But the reason that King Arthur is looked at in British legend as the once and future king is not just because of the way that the story ended, but also because Arthur is considered to be the archetypal English king. In other words, he was the model. He was, the, he was the icon, he was the expectation, the highest and best example that you could point to of what an English king was supposed to be. He was the archetype, right? The, the example and the one that all the kings should uh, try to be like and, that they, and the standard that other kings were held to. You can see this, uh, this, this admiration of uh, King Arthur and, and his legends in the title, The Once and Future King. Because not only did it mean that, or, or like I said before, not only was it a reference to how the story ended, but also to like the kind of hopes that the English people had of like what kind of king they might be able to follow. Likewise, David was an archetypal king for Israel. He was a type of king that the uh, people of Israel looked at in their history after this as, as the model as the standard, as the one that they would look to and say, whenever we think of everything that an Israelite king should be, a ruler over God's people, it's David. That's what he should be like. All other kings are compared to David. And they as well had a hope that David, not himself, but his kingdom would be the once and future kingdom. 
Because as the story goes on in the life of Israel, David is a man. He eventually dies. His sons and his household uh, eventually uh, fall apart. Israel is overtaken, but they still believe in God's promise. That the promise that God had made to David, that he was establishing a kingdom that would be without end, was true. And so they looked forward to that kingdom, which was, which once was, and would be again. A king who would return to take David's throne. David as well was, in a sense, the once and future king, his kingdom, the once and future kingdom. He was the archetypal king for Israel. And so, because of the importance of who David was and also his kingdom, and really what we're looking at here in chapters like 5 through 8 or so, being the pinnacle of David's reign and life, I thought it'd be important for us to, to really zoom in and consider some lessons that we can learn from these stories here in these chapters, uh, but especially in 2 Samuel chapter 5 whenever David finally receives the fullness, the consummation of God's promises to him. There's three big lessons or things that I want us to see. We looked at the first one last week, uh, which was, uh, well, let me back up. The three things that I'm taking these lessons from are come from those first couple of verses, the reasons and the way that the people of Israel presented themselves to David. So the first one was the way they presented themselves. They came to him and they said, here we are, your own flesh and blood. My whole sermon last week was on that phrase, your own flesh and blood. If you missed it, you can go back and uh, catch it on the podcast or on YouTube. Okay, So your own flesh and blood, the way they presented themselves. But then there's two more things that they say that I think provide some very interesting and crucial lessons for us here. What we're going to look at today is David's leadership and then, second, and, then, and then his reign. So last week we looked at the first thing they said, presenting themselves as, as David's own flesh and blood. Today we're going to look at David's leadership and then his reign. So, as I said before, in 2 Samuel 5, we finally see the consummation of David's kingdom. From the time that David was, a, he's still a young man, he's only 30 years old at, at this point. But from the time that he was a very young man, maybe what we would call a boy, God had, uh, uh, through the prophet Samuel, anointed him to be the future king of Israel, promised him the kingdom because God was taking his kingdom away from Saul and his household and placing it onto David and his descendants. But it was not an easy and primrose path to get to the kingdom, right? Instead, uh, David had to grow and learn. He became a mighty warrior. He became a hero, as we're going to see in a moment. He became a hero in Israel for defeating their enemies. He became more famous and more well-admired and adored by the people than even the king Saul himself. As Saul saw this, he became jealous. He was a, a, a paranoid tyrant of a king, and so he tried to take David's life. So David has his time going through the wilderness, running as an outlaw with his, uh, with his band of soldiers, uh, soldier outlaws, you could say, uh, running away, defending themselves, and trying to avoid direct conflict with Saul. After all these years, and after all the struggles, after all the suffering, after all the times, just put yourself in David's shoes. Think of how many times he might have doubted. Or how many times do, do we go through a minor hiccup in our plans and we begin to doubt and we begin to question God's goodness or love for us or, or so on and so on? Imagine what David went through. But finally here. And not just one tribe. It wasn't just Judah. Because for seven years, finally Judah was following him. But now it says all the tribes. They all come together. And they say, here we are. Finally, they all come together to accept David as their king. 
And they give those three reasons. Like I said, the flesh and blood. And then here's the second reason. The second reason that they accept David as their king is because of his leadership. We see this in verse 2. So they come and they present themselves and they say, Even while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led us out to battle and brought us back. So there's the second reason why they come, and they finally accept him as their king because of his leadership. So the first big point, or really, it's a big point with some sub-points I'm going I'm to explain. The king is a leader of the people. That's the second lesson, building off the first we had last week for the, from this passage I want us to learn, that the king is a leader of the people. So I have some sub-points to explain this, what it means that the king is the, a leader of the people. So the first of those is this. The first, leadership is displayed in action and character, not in titles. Leadership is displayed in action and character, not in titles. Notice what they said in verse 2. They come to him and they say, even though Saul was our king, officially, right? Even though Saul was our, had the title, even though he had the throne, even though he had the robe and the crown, you were the one, they said. Even while Saul was king, they said, you were the one. He was the one who what? They said, led us out into battle and brought us back. What's the idea of that? He's the one who led them, and he's the one who, who defeated their enemies for them. He is the one, though Saul had the title, who protected them. He is the one who provided for them. Though Saul had the title, in David's character and in his actions, they recognize and they confess here. You were our true king all along. You were our true leader. This is important. Even while Saul was king, you were the one. Leadership is displayed in action and character, not titles. It's important for us to get this and to really accept it because it's easy for us to get caught up in titles, isn't it? It's easy for us to get caught up in titles, get caught up in followers, or get caught up in the self-presentation that people put before us. And to look at those who have the titles, to look at those who have the, uh, the, the positions, to look at those who have the followers, or to look at those who present themselves as leaders and say, well, you know, if they have the title, the leadership, the followers, the prestige, whatever else, well, then I guess we should listen to them and follow them. But do they have the character and the actions of a leader? So this is important for us to grasp in our own life and discerning who are those that ought to be our leader. So this is true even, even in terms of, of, of local church and church leadership, right? There can be people who have titles, and I, and I hope that it's not this way here at, Lead, at Redeemer. I don't think it's this way. I think that we have some incredible leaders here. I don't think we have anyone who, is, uh, who just holds a title but not the character in action e- uh, either, right? But, but it can be true in church, in church as well. There can be someone who holds a title or holds a title or a position in ministry, but their actions and their character do not fulfill the office that they hold. So it's important for us in discerning who should we follow? Who should we listen to? What, what leadership should we give our loyalty to even in, uh, the, in church, ministry, and in our Christian lives? Do not look to followers. How many followers does, do they have? How many book sales do they have? Don't look to titles. Look to character and to actions. Look, in other words, at their fruit as Jesus taught his disciples and warning them to watch out for the Pharisees. The Pharisees were those who had titles. 
They had prestige. They walked around in the city streets praying their prayers and wearing their robes. But what did Jesus say to his disciples? He said, watch out for them. How do you watch out for them? What do you look for? He said, watch their fruit. Their fruit is the evidence of their character and actions. So it's true in the church. It's true in our lives beyond the church. Whenever we're discerning who should we lead or, or who should we follow? Who should we give our loyalty to? Who should we listen to? Once again, we should look in whether it be in government, whether it be in our uh, uh, in where we work or anywhere else. We look to those who have uh, the character and the actions of a good leader, not just those who hold a title, but even in ourselves as well. None of us in here are going to be a king anytime soon, I imagine. But, but we still all have areas of our life that we are called to be leaders in. For some of us, it's, it's a very small kingdom that God has given you to be a king or queen over, to be a leader over. He's given you your sphere, maybe your, your home, or maybe he has given you a sphere of influence and, and leadership beyond the home, and maybe in business, in school, in your, maybe just in your social circles. You, you hold a, a, a key position in the, your social relationships. You know, you're, you're an adhesive of the social relationships around you. Maybe you, you desire a, leader, a greater leadership roles in your business place, in the church, or in, in the future that you are looking towards. And it's very, very easy as we look to these roles that we have, whatever they might be, whether it be husband, whether it be wife, whether it be father, mother, whether it be boss, uh, regional manager, assistant to the regional manager, whatever title it is that you're desiring, it's easy for us to start putting all of our thoughts and our energy and our hopes into, well, I've, just, I've got to read, once I get that title, once I get that position, once I get that play card on my desk, right, then, then ah, that'll be great. I'll finally feel as though I've made it, like I've done something worthwhile, I've done something significant. And in our pursuit of the Tyler position, neglect what is really important, what is real leadership, which is the development of character, the, the development of a character of a leader that is worth being followed, that is worth listening to, that has something to say and, something, and, and, and can lead people well, and the actions that follow that character of leadership. Men, this is true in the home. You just having the title of father and of husband, right, household leader in the home, is not enough. And you just having that title alone is, is really not enough to engender the loyalty of your spouse and children. You cannot expect to just, by virtue of that title or authority, and this applies to you men who don't have children yet either, that your family will be happy and joy-filled to follow your leadership. Instead, you must earn it, and you must prove it in the development of your character. Be a husband and father that is worth joyfully following. Make it easy for them to trust you and to follow your leadership. And once again, this applies to many other areas. Friends, invest more and more time and more focus into that development of character because titles and positions can be taken away. Titles and positions can change. Your job can change, right? Your, the place you're living can change. All those things can change or they can be taken away. Suffering can come in and wreck plans, but the character that you 
in participation with Jesus as your Lord and the Holy Spirit, but the character that God builds in you, that is something that can't be taken away by calamity, that suffering cannot change, and that, and that you know, cannot be removed. That is something that remains and is worthwhile. So pursue that over titles and positions. Just like David did, even while Saul was king, you were the one, they said. But what else can we learn about leadership from David's becoming king here? First, we learn that leadership is displayed in action and character, not in titles. Secondly, we learn that leadership is covenantal. Leadership is covenantal. Look at what it says uh, in verse 3. After they come and they say this, it says, So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. So so this is happening in Hebron where David had, this was the headquarters of David's reign at this point. Uh, Later on, it's going to be Jerusalem. So they come here. And in accepting David as their king, it says, King David made a covenant with them. King David made a covenant with them at Hebron in the Lord's presence. And they anointed David king over Israel. So this teaches us that leadership is also covenantal. King David made a covenant with the elders. Notice what this means and and, and how it's different from how this could have gone. David could have become their king by conquest. David had the following, as I said right here, he was uh, reigning in Hebron with the tribe of Judah following him for about seven years. At this point, David had no other opponents. Ishbosheth and Abner, who had been his opponents up until this point, are dead. David, by conquest and by compelling them through force, could have brought the rest of the tribes underneath his rule. But instead, what does he do? Instead, it's voluntary. He doesn't compel it by force. Instead, it's voluntary. He does not reign by conquest. Instead, they come to him and they enter into a covenant together. They enter into a covenantal relationship together, right? So what a covenantal relationship means, one where there is a, they, the relationship is bound by certain expectations and blessings, whenever both parties who are entered into that fulfill their expectations and requirements. So the people enter into a covenant with King David by choice. By choice, they come to him and they go into this covenant. Their responsibilities in the covenant are to, are to be a faithful people to be a loyal people, to, to serve their king, right, and to, uh, and to follow his leadership. And their reward for that is his good rule and reign. His responsibility to them is to be the king who that they deserve, to be the king that God calls him to be. And his reward is that they follow him with their, with their loyalty. But they enter into a covenant together. He doesn't go and smash them and say, now I'm your king whether you like it or not. Instead, they enter into a covenant. They enter his reign voluntarily. It's important for us to note this because God always operates this way. God always operates this way. Whenever we go back and we read in the Exodus, whenever the people were gathered together at Mount Sinai and God gave the covenant, I mean, I'm sorry, God gave, uh, gave the law, 
God gives them the law, and then you, you can read about this in Deuteronomy. God gives the law, and Moses comes down the mountain with the law. So that'd be the Ten Commandments, and then all of the other laws after it. You can read about Leviticus, Numbers. God comes down, and now Moses stands before Israel, the, the nation, as a representative of God to the nation, having just spent that time in the presence of God, receiving the law, Alma Sinai. He comes down, and God has him say to the people three times, call them and invite them to accept the covenant and to come into the covenant with them. So he calls them, will you receive this covenant? Will you enter into it? Will you follow this law that I'm giving you, right? This, the, the terms of the covenant that I'm laying before you. And they say, yes. But then he says it a second time. Okay, <laughs> right? We already said yes. But then he says it a third time. Will you enter into it? Highlighting this that they will enter into the covenant with God for him to be their God and for them to be his people by their free choice. Not compelled, not brainwashed, not because they were uh, determined to, but because he uh, is worth following and they choose to follow him. This is how God always works. And we see this is how God's king works. This is how God works while there is still time before his judgment. There will come a day at the end of time and on, on the other side of this life, on the day of judgment, where God will finally uh, execute justice for human sin. And those who up until that point had not chosen to, uh, chosen to follow him, then they will, be, uh, they will be put into submission by force. But until then, God freely invites people to make a choice to accept him as their king. We see David doing this as well. But moreover, the covenant doesn't just highlight the nature, the gentle nature of David's reign and of God's uh, kingship, but a covenant meant this. It meant that their relationship was more than just a relationship between a ruler and a people being ruled. Other kings throughout history, there was no limitation to their rule. There was no limitation to their authority. They were the absolute. They were at the top of the food chain. They were at the top of the hierarchy, you can say. And so what was the law that they were bound to? Their own word. Whatever they wanted to do, whatever they decided, whatever whim and desire they had on any day, that was the law, and it was the one that the people had to uh, submit to and follow whether it was good for the people or bad for the people, whether it was liberating or oppressive, whether it led to their flourishing or to their demise. Whatever the king said went. There was no limitation to his authority and to his uh, reign. You can see this even in ancient Rome. This will be a long time after uh, what we read about here in 2 Samuel 5. But you can see this even in ancient Rome whenever uh, all Roman citizens were expected to, uh, to say, Caesar is Lord. They were all expected to be able to say Caesar is Lord. And what that means is that Caesar is Lord means he has all authority over my life. He claims all authority. He claims all ownership over my life, over my property, over myself, over my family, even over uh, my, my thoughts and my loyalty, right? He is all. He, had, he is Lord. This is how all kings operated. And this is how some leaders still operate today. But in contrast, it says, the elders came and David made a covenant with them. And notice what it says. It says, he made a covenant with them in the presence of God. 
David was not at the top of the hierarchy in this relationship. No king of Israel would be at the top of the food chain, at the top of the hierarchy, would be the ultimate authority, would be the last word. Because they would enter into this covenant, right, where there is a relationship bound with commitments, expectations, rules, and rewards. And over this covenant was God, the ultimate authority, the final word. So that the people were not just having to submit to an authoritarian man, but instead they were submitting and following a man who himself was submitting to the ultimate authority, being God. Who was to hold the king accountable? That he would follow the law. That he would not become an authoritarian or a totalitarian over the people. That he would not crush them with a, uh, with a, a selfish rule. Who would hold, hold him authority? God. It's important that we note that. God, they made a covenant together in the presence of God. Whenever Israel and David finally came together, it was not a two-party agreement. There was a, it was a three-party agreement between the people, David, and God. When we look at history, we can see how the covenantal nature of God's rule over his people, whether that be in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, or whether that be in King David, or whether that be in King Jesus. But the covenantal nature of, of the relationship between the people and their king was, was, um, was drawn out and was worked upon and was, uh, was attempted to be applied to society, particularly after the Protestant Reformation. We can go and read about Luther and Calvin and, and, and many other of the leaders of the Reformation after the Protestant Reformation beginning to read Scripture and particularly read passages like 2 Samuel chapter 5 and read how the people and their ruler were brought into this relationship where there was a covenant made between them but also between God. And so the nature of that covenant and the nature of God being the ultimate authority did what? It placed limitations upon the authority of the king, and it placed, uh, it placed limitations, expectations, and especially accountability. So what they started to do, Calvin and others in the Protestant Reformation, is apply a covenantal model even to their cities, and even to their uh, states, where the king or governor, the mayor over a region, would uh, not just reign as the absolute, but instead he would enter into a covenant with the people, they called this covenantal societies or commonwealths. Maybe you've heard the phrase before. They would enter into and establish a commonwealth where it was believed that there was God, the magistrate, whether that be a king, mayor, governor, and the people. And these three parties, these three, uh, th- these three parties were entering into a relationship together where the people would choose to follow the leader, the magistrate, the magistrate would choose to lead, but with the understanding that his leadership and his authority was limited and it was checked by the authority of God, which was over him, placing boundaries on what he was allowed to do to the people and the ways he was allowed to, to lead or to expect or to take from the people. And so that if he broke that covenant, he was now illegitimate. These Covenantal societies and commonwealths go all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 5 in reading of how whenever God establishes a king, what does it look like? It looks like this. The king and the people in the presence of God entering into a covenant together 
where there are expectations, blessings, but also limitations to the leader's authority. So we learn about leadership here, that leadership is displayed in action and character, not in titles. Leadership is covenantal. And then third, we learn this, leadership is heroic. Leadership is heroic, but should not result in hero worship. Let me explain that. Heroship is hero- uh, leadership is heroic, but it should not result in hero worship. Whenever we go on in chapter 5, and even though I didn't read it today, I'd encourage you guys to go and read it on your own today and this week. Whenever you go on and read in, in 2 Samuel 5 about what David does with this leadership now that he is made king, he immediately goes and he uh, deals with and he vanquishes the final enemies who had still been pestering Israel. In fact, the first thing that he does is he goes to Jerusalem, where there's a group named the Jebusites who had still been holding Jerusalem. You can actually go all the way back and read, I think it was in Josh, either in Joshua or Judges. You can go back and read how, I think it was Joshua. You can go back and read in Joshua how whenever the people were given the promised land by God, and, they, and so they went into the promised land and were going to battle with all the tribes who were holding the land that God had promised to give to them, there was one city and there was one group that they failed to defeat and drive out, and that was the Jebusites holding Jerusalem, Zion, the the, the promised city. All this time, the Jebusites have been holding it. But finally, here comes King David, right? The archetypal king, the great king. He comes, and what does he do? He defeats the Jebusites. It says that he comes up and they, and they say, you know, our stronghold and our city and our walls are so impenetrable and we are so much stronger than you that even our blind and our lame could defeat you. And so David says, well, then bring them out. <laughs> they go and they defeat the city. They take it. And so finally, all of Israel is now uh, given to the people of Israel, fulfilling the promise of God. The Philistines hear about David's reign, and so before they can even make it to his doorstep, he goes out to fight them, and he defeats them. But here's what he does, and you can see this in verses 19 and 23. And both, both times before he goes to battle with the Philistines, he stops and he asks the Lord. He stops and he asks God. He says, what should I do? He says, should I go out to battle? Here's what this highlights and reminds us of. That all of, in all of David's victories and in all of David's battles and just all the incredible stories that we read about, he was fundamentally a man after God's own heart. You remember that? He is a man after God's own heart. And before he defeats any of any Israel's enemies, whether it be the Jebusites or Philistines or anyone else, he follows God's guidance. And in being a man after God's own heart, having that character of a godly leader, and being someone who followed God's guidance in everything, what did it make him? A hero to the people. True godly leadership and godly character produces people who are heroes to those around them. None of us are probably going to be a hero on on David's level, being a hero to a whole nation. But all of us have the capacity and opportunity to be a hero even in just one person's life. How do you do that? Do you do it through selfish pursuits? Do you do that through magnifying the self? Do you do it by by calling yourself a hero? You don't do it through any of these things. Instead, you do it through following David's example. By fashioning your heart 
to be a man or a woman after God's own heart and following God's guidance in your life. And when you do so, then you'll become someone who is a hero to others. J.P. Moreland, uh, a friend and, and a great philosopher, in his book, The God Question, talked about the difference between what people saw as, as the ultimate drive in life in classical societies, including in the Bible, and then in, in modern-day societies. Today, in modern-day societies and here in the West and in America, we see the ultimate purpose uh, of life as being um, <clears throat> the pursuit of happiness. Now, there's nothing necessarily bad about that, depending on what we mean by the pursuit of happiness. What we mean today, especially in the 20th and 21st century, is the pursuit of whatever feels good to me, the pursuit of whatever makes the most of me, right? The, the pursuit of me, driving the self, following after the desires of the self, making the self big, making the self famous. And so what J.P. Moreland said is this, whenever we follow the modern sense of happiness or what life is all about, it creates celebrities. But whenever we follow after the classical sense or the biblical sense of what a full and, and good life is like, it creates heroes. Because the full life and the good life, a life of truly pursuing happiness, according to Scripture and other classical societies, was the development of virtue. In the Bible, we might say the pursuit of righteousness, as Paul called Timothy to. He said, flee from sin and pursue righteousness along with those who follow after God with a pure heart. The life of pursuing happiness and of in a life that is truly good and full, we must understand it, 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 we, we need to reject what our modern society tells us and, and follow after the life which is one of pursuing righteousness, the life of developing virtue and character. And then, as opposed to our society, we can see the people who make it to the top of our society today, whether it be in government, whether it be in uh, popular culture, or whether, whoever else it might be, those people get there nine times out of ten by what? Pursuing the self. And they become celebrities. And they, they gain a huge following after uh, other people who are buying into their narrative that the good life is in pursuing a life like that celebrity. We need to reject that, friends. Reject the kind of lifestyle, the kind of trying to build a good life which creates celebrity, instead one that creates heroes. Leadership is heroic. You can be a leader to someone. You may never have the huge number of followers. You may never have the titles. But in heaven, the fruits and the rewards of your pursuing righteousness and your being just an everyday hero to those around you, being someone who puts others above yourself to be their hero, right? Your rewards will be seen in heaven. There's this beautiful, beautiful scene, and you remember it if you've ever read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. If you've ever read it, you remember this scene. There, it's, it's so impactful. Lewis is, um, is he's in this uh, kind of imaginary place that exists between heaven and hell. And, and so in there, he's going to watch different people. He's going to watch the people who, in their life, pursued self above all and how they slowly fade away, going further and further deeper into the wastelands that, 
is hell in this imaginary place. But then there is heaven, the true city. And he's watching people go in one way or another. And he's being helped and followed along by his mentor, George MacDonald, uh, who was an older writer that Lewis enjoyed. And he's watching. And here comes this woman. This woman comes passing by, and she is just covered in the trappings of wealth. She is covered in robes and jewelry and beauty, and she's being led in a procession of people celebrating her, right, singing, and it's like a whole parade for this woman. And so Lewis is watching her go by, and he doesn't recognize her, but he thinks he would, right? You see someone in a parade like this, and you think you know who they are, and he says, who is this? Was this one of the queens? I don't recognize her. Was, uh, did she have some great organization? Like, who was this? I don't recognize her. And George MacDonald says, oh, and you, you wouldn't know her. And you never would have heard her name. And if you, would have saw her, if you would have seen her back in the old life, you wouldn't know who she really was. Because here was someone, just a nameless, not famous woman who spent her whole life for others. Not for the self, but for others, spending herself and spending her time and her energy and her resources to bless those around her. And he says, and though she never had any children of her own, she had many, many who were, in a sense, her children. She was a hero. You can be a hero without being a somebody in the terms of the world, without being a celebrity. And how do you do it? by the development of virtue and participation with God in your, in your life and following after God's guidance. But like I said, before I move on, leadership makes you a hero, but it shouldn't revol- result in hero worship. When we go on, and even here in chapter 5, which, which like I said, is the pinnacle of David's leadership, you'll read it how it says, after David... Um, Uh, claims Jerusalem. He sets it up as his city, and he takes residence there. It says, and he continued to multiply wives. He continued to take on wives and concubines. He was building up his harem and continuing to have many children. Even at the pinnacle of David's reign, we're reminded that he was a sinful man. He was still imperfect. He was a righteous man, but he was certainly still a man with sin and with faults. The Bible, even lifting up the heroes that we ought to admire is extremely realistic in reminding us, but don't worship them because they were men. And we can see example after example after example of that today, of how it's easy for us to fall into hero worship only to have our heroes disappoint, only to find out whether it's during their life or after that maybe they weren't all that we thought they would be. They, they, we, they weren't all that we thought that they were, whether that was because of some hypocrisy or maybe it was just because we put them on a pedestal. So let's be careful. It's good that we elevate our heroes and that we celebrate them. I think one of the reasons that we slip into hero worship so often today is because we have such a lack of heroes. So whenever there's someone who stands out, it's hard not to give them a little too much admiration. I think it's good that we celebrate heroes because when we celebrate heroes, it encourages all of us to live lives that are similar. And it teaches our children, this is who you should want to be like. This this is the kind of character that you should want to have. So we need to celebrate heroes. Not not Superman and Spider-Man, right? The the real ones. But remember that that they're all sinful people still. Leadership is heroic, but should not result in hero worship. So, well, that was a lot of time spent on the leadership portion. 
The rest of this is very short. The third reason that they accept David as their king, they say in verse 2, um, the Lord also said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be ruler over all Israel. The third and final reason they accept David as their king is because they finally recognize and accept as true, just for, not just for David, but for themselves also, that God had promised that David would be their king. So this is the third reason they accept his kingship, the acknowledgement of God's promise to the people. And look at what happens whenever they acknowledge that promise and the promise is then fulfilled in David's life. There's this cycle that we can recognize in David's life where there is victory and then there's house building. There's victory and there's house building. David defeats Israel's enemies and then he builds a house. David defeats Israel's enemies and then he builds a city. David defeats Israel's enemies and then he builds a nation. It's a cycle that we can see in, not in David's life, but it's one that once we notice in David's life, we can also then see it playing out in other areas of Scripture, how God defeats evil and then he builds a house. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. It says that God creates the heavens and the earth, but they were what? Formless and void. They were chaotic. They were uninhabitable. They were not places that, uh, that, that would be suitable for his creation. So what does God do? He leads a mission of conquest against the chaos, and he establishes order when he forms and creates the world day by day by day, right? Establishing order. He has, he has the lights. Then he creates the dry land, and he separates it from the waters. And it, right, he does all these different things. What is he doing? And then it says that he builds a garden, and then he places mankind in that garden to live in relationship and a, a life of worship with him. You know what God does in Genesis chapter 1 and, and, and chapter 2? Victory and house building. He leads a conquest, and then he builds a house. We can see it in David as well. He leads a conquest against Jerusalem, it says, and then he builds a house. He leads a conquest against the Philistines, and then he builds a nation. We can see as he goes on, he, he's going to try, he's going to attempt to, he won't be able to, but Solomon will, to build a temple. Victory and then house building. What's important to note about that? Well, this, our third point. The king is a gift of God to the people. The king is a gift of God to the people because the king leads conquests against the enemies of the people, against the forces of evil, and then he builds a house for them. He defeats his enemies, but then he also accepts partnerships of friends. When we read about David building his house in Jerusalem, in verse 11, it says, King Hiram of Tyre sent envoys to David, and he sent logs and carpenters and all these other things to contribute to building the house of God's king. Isn't that incredible? A Gentile. And, and, and riches and spoils from the nations of the Gentiles was also being accepted in to build up uh, the, the house of God's king. The Gentiles as well are contributing to building the house. So David defeats his enemies, blessing the people, and he accepts the partnerships of friends. And there's another king who does this as well, and that's Jesus. Jesus, the true Davidic king. Jesus, the true king that, you know, David might be looked at as an archetype, but he was really just pointing forward to the real thing, right? Who was Jesus? Jesus defeats the forces of evil, defeating sin. 
Jesus defeats sin, evil, and death itself. And then what does he say he's going to do after he defeats that? What did, do you remember what he told his disciples? He said he has to leave for a time, and why? Because he has to build them a house. Because he's going to build them a place where they will be able to live in relationship with him in flourishing and freedom from sin, in freedom from the chaos wreaked upon this world because of evil and because of death. He says he's going to build them a house, and one day he's going to return, and then he's going to bring that house with him as we live together in the new heavens and the new earth. The kind of king that David was was a great one, but it could be one that was only pointing forward to the kind of king that we have the joy of following, being Jesus Christ. Christ has come to defeat evil, and he will come again to finally defeat his evil, uh, his enemies and consummate the promise of his kingdom. Here's what we need to understand. No matter how much time it takes, just like David had to wait all those years in the wilderness, no matter how much time it takes, no matter how many obstacles are thrown in the way, time cannot dissolve Jesus' promise, and the obstacles cannot stop it. Just as we see in David's kingdom finally being established, nothing could stop it. Remember all that they went through. But God preserved his king, and he established his kingdom. He proved his word true. The same is true for King Jesus. No matter how long it takes, it doesn't mean that his word isn't true, or that his, his word is dissolved. Time cannot thwart God's promise. And no obstacles, and no raging of God's enemies could stop it. We have that promise to look forward to. Therefore, Jesus is our true once and future king who exists not in lore or imaginations, but in truth and reality. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are our king who has defeated sin, evil, and death for us that you defeated sin and death in your own body, in your own son, so that we might not have to pay the penalty and the consequences for our sin, so that instead we might receive forgiveness as the, the debt that we should have paid is satisfied. Lord, we praise you that you are such a king and that you invite us to follow you. Father, help all of us in here to remember that you invite us into this covenant with you where you give us your victory and you are building us a house and that this gift is offered to each and every one of us, but it is only offered before the judgment. So Father, if there's any here who have not received that gift, who have not accepted your kingship, who have not bent the knee to submit to you and receive your gift and follow you in their life, Lord, I ask that your spirit would go into their hearts, bring to life these words of the gospel, these seeds that are planted there, and give them the gift of faith to respond in happiness and joy. Lord, help us to remember the lessons that we learn about your reign and about uh, your leadership and about the kind of people that it calls us to be. Help us to be people who might be men and women after your own heart and who follow your guidance in all things. Father, so we might see everyday heroes in just ordinary Christian men and women. 
We pray these things in the name of our once and future King, our true Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.